0: This is by Brene Brown from The Gifts of Imperfection. In Jungian circles, shame is often referred to as the swampland of the soul. I'm not suggesting that we wade out into the swamp and set up camp. I've done that, and I can tell you that the swampland of the soul is an important place to visit, but you would not want to live there. What I am proposing is that we learn to wade through it. We need to see that standing on the shore and catastrophizing about what could happen if we talked honestly about our fears is actually more painful than grabbing the hand of a trusted companion and crossing the swamp. And most important. We need to learn why constantly trying to maintain our footing on the shifting shore as we gaze across to the other side of the swamp where our worthiness waits for us is much harder work than trudging across.
1: I sort of advertised this talk as being called, How Much Are You Willing to Suffer? Uh, So I'm surprised anybody's here today.
2: Um, (laughs)
1: It also occurred to me that that sounds like something a melodrama villain would say to the hero as he's tied to a chair. And say, How much are you willing to suffer?
2: Right.
1: What I'm talking about, though, is just this concept of the comfort zone, with which I'm sure you're well familiar, and the expression getting out of your comfort zone. Um, but it would be hypocritical in the extreme for me to stand up here and, and pretend to be some kind of an expert on getting out of your comfort zone because I have spent the majority of my life, I promise you, safely inside my comfort zone, which has a big soft bed in it, and I've spent most of my life not only in that bed, but under a heavy blanket, or under the bed in a fetal position. I don't like getting out of my comfort zone. I don't think anybody does. That's why it's the comfort zone. Uh, The problem with the comfort zone, of course, is that I, I did learn at a fairly early age that the dreams we have, the goals that we yearn to achieve, doggone it, they are all outside, right? Um, if you really want those things, you're going to have to go out there and get them. Uh, and I say I learned that's how life's work, life works. I did not say that I learned how to do this or became good at it. It's a lot easier, I've found, to give up. Just give up. That's a lot easier. Um, Tell ourselves it's not worth it. I'm a writer. I'm a playwright and screenwriter. And I got drawers full of half-finished projects that nobody's seen. And you know why. Because I'm afraid of what they'll say. I'm scared that people won't like them. So I have chosen for decades to do nothing with them. But I think I've finally reached a place in my life, and I credit Karen with a lot of this. I'm sick of sitting on these, these documents. I am now in a place, I'm happy to say, where I would much rather face that moment where somebody laughs in my face because my script is so stupid. Then go to my grave, leaving behind a filing cabinet full of carefully curated secret writings. <laughs> and that's really what I want to talk with you about today, is this question of what things are worth leaving our comfort zone for. Um, I do know the subject's been on my heart for a long time, and then when we on the program committee had the idea for a month dedicated to comfort and discomfort, I said, well, I guess now is the time. In a way, I think it's the great unifier, the struggle, the conflict between what each of us is willing to do and what we're not willing to do. But what I mean is that we all feel this conflict inside ourselves. It's part of being human. Uh, and it's one of the profound ways in which all people on earth are more alike than we are unlike. No matter how great the reward, no matter how wonderful dream... Uh, the dream that may be attained. There are still things we're willing to do to achieve that, and things we're not. Um, I'm wondering if I am alone here in remembering a running joke on the early 90s TV series, In Living Color. Do you remember that show? Um, one of the continuing characters in the show was a guy played by Damon Wayans who was making some extra money as a party clown. Uh, that he character he called Homie D. Clown. And the whole joke was that he's terrible at being an entertainer, um, particularly of little kids. And, and uh, people were always trying to get him to play some kind of a game or, or something. And regardless of what the game was, the answer was always the same. I don't think so. Homie, don't play that. <laughs> it was his catchphrase. So. Um, and that's one of those things that has lodged in my mind. It's been nearly 30 years now, but time and again, some challenge will present itself. And I can hear it in my head. Homie, don't play that. <laughs> And sometimes I say it out loud. And what I'm saying is I'm not going there. I will do a lot of things to get something good in return, but I won't do that. I gave a talk a couple of years ago, standing right here, that had a very similar theme. So some folks here may remember this. That where I was going was basically about our individual commitments to the work of this church. I was asking, what are we willing to give up in addition to money, um, to be a part of the church that's doing great things in our community, that's educating our young people for life ahead, that's striving actively to live out our principles. And I started small, you know. I asked, are you willing to commit to just be here every Sunday you possibly can, on time and ready to fully participate? And pretty much everybody said, yeah. So I got bigger and I said, "Do you, were you willing to put up signs and posters and leaflet people? And there were fewer yeses. You know, and I sort of kept building it out, and the outside edge of all this was, "Are you willing to go and ring doorbells in Hickory and the surrounding area and tell people the good news about Unitarian universalism <coughs> and when that was greeted with profound silence, <laughs> I admitted that there is no power on earth that will get me out there to do that either homie don 't play that We do sacrifice. We do sacrifice, all of us. We give up bits and pieces of our comfort zone in exchange for the good things that we want out of life, the, the things we know we'll never have if we don't. So we do drag ourselves to the gym. We, we do make an effort with the difficult colleague. Uh, we do volunteer for church committees, even though we're afraid they're going to take up all our time. And we all have limits. And I think it's valuable to think about what those limits are and as we go through our lives, I think it's important to take those limits out and have a good look at them from time to time because they're changing. I want to ask you to indulge me in a personal story about this. Uh, I think when I'm up here, I tell a lot of stories about my own life, but those are the stories I know. Um, so I hope you, uh, that they at least illustrate something for you, or uh, it's not just some colossal narcissism, I, I promise you. I tell stories about me because those are the stories I can't tell stories from your life. And you probably don't want me to. So. <laughs> but, for, but first, before telling you my, my story, let me ask you if you know this famous Hollywood story about the newspaper publisher William Wilkerson. Um, one day in 1936, he was eating at the Top Hat Malt Shop on Sunset Boulevard and looked across to the soda counter and saw this remarkable-looking 16-year-old girl wearing a tight sweater. And he went over to her and said, you know, I can get you in pictures. I know, right? Um, But he really could. And she said, oh, wow. And uh, he said, what's your name? And uh, she said, Julia Turner. And he said, "Uh, boring. How about Lana Turner? And the rest, you know, Um, that was nearly 80 years ago. It was, it was more than 80 years ago. And ever since then, people, maybe most people, have dreamed of having somebody come up to them like that and say, hey, you're amazing, let me make you a movie star. <laughs> and I think the power of that fantasy is that it means getting to skip the awkward and painful part of getting outside of your comfort zone, to be transported from all she did was skip her typing class that day and go out and have a soda instead, and the next thing you know, she's got a contract with Warner Brothers. Uh, we would all like for that to happen. But there are thousands and thousands of actors out there, friends of mine right now, busting their butts to try to get noticed in this industry. And some of them sometimes having to do humiliating things only to then be told no thanks. And all Lana Turner had to do was be there. So we fantasize about life being that easy. Well, I said I was going to tell a story about me. And this is my, this is my Lana Turner story. Uh, How my amazing talents were suddenly discovered. No tight sweater necessary. I'm not sure even Karen has heard all of this one. (laughs) When I was in graduate school, I lived with three other guys, uh, two straight and one gay. And I'm not proud of this, but I didn't know a lot of gay men at this time in my life. And didn't have, I wasn't prepared to have one as a roommate. Um, And so I was not as nice to Brian as I should have been. Um, but anyway, uh, on one night when we were all getting along f- fine, um, and I wasn't in rehearsal for anything, I was at home, and Brian had his boyfriend David over. Um, my other two roommates, by the way, were also both named David, so at any given time, the guys in the house were Lee, Brian, David, David, and David. <laughs> so, anyway, but Brian and his David were in Brian's room talking, and I was in my room with the door closed. And I don't know what household task I was doing, but it must have been a happy one, because I was singing a happy song while I was doing this, folding laundry. The song was, in fact, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. And suddenly, <laughs> it just ripped that right off. Well, suddenly from Brian's room comes this Screaming. A pair of screams, actually, two young male voices going absolutely insane about something. They actually did this a lot, and frankly, it's why I had the door closed. Um, And So I thought they had just read something in a magazine together or something. But anyway, then there's this pounding at my door, all four fists, and I jerked the door open, and they almost fell into my room. And David screams, was that you? And I said, you mean singing right now? Yeah, and again with the screaming. What I didn't know, what I was learning in that moment, was that David and another friend of theirs, Stephen, had been trying for weeks to put together an act for a talent show. Um, it was a competitive thing where the regional winners would go on to state and it, it was kind of like The Voice or, or American Idol even. It was, that, it was that kind of thing. And of all things, what they had wanted to do was to sing Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. <laughs>
2: um,
1: they had studied the Andrews sisters recordings uh, minutely and they had the Patty and Laverne lines worked out and what they were looking for their quest, their hopeless quest was to find somebody who could sing the Maxine line and then hear that's what I was doing of all things in the whole world so that was my Lana Turner moment <laughs> because they said you're in the group and I joined up and we were a trio and we rehearsed Wow, in moments stolen here and there from our busy schedules. Uh, And the place, the convenient place to work was in this college town's biggest gay bar, a place I would never have set foot in otherwise, Um, with an accompanist who's somebody I knew from the theater department, uh, brilliant piano player, Michael. So Michael, David, Stephen, and I, we had had fun, you know? Um, And I got to know them as human beings. I got to know them as men. I got to know them as people. And meanwhile, I got to be honest with you, and I wish I could transport you back through time for this. We were good. (laughs) I mean, we started out good, and ere long, it was amazing. We sounded like the Andrews. We slightly butch Andrews sisters, but we, you know, we knew we were going to win this thing. And one day after we'd rehearsed for a while, Stephen gave me this big hug, and he told me how glad he was that we'd all found each other. And I'll never forget that moment, because I was so, so happy. I had moved, in terms of my own comfort zone, so quickly in my thought and feeling about these guys. I had gone really kind of at lightning speed from hiding from them, because of my own complicated fears and biases, to thinking of them as brothers. And to being able to perform with them, and then Stephen asked me when I could meet his costumer to be measured for my dress.
2: <laughs>
1: Don't ask me why. It had never occurred to me before <laughs> that this is a drag show. Because my experience—the only thing I can say is that my experience up to that point was it was these three, it was these guys that we were going to be singing this song. As the Andrews sisters, it had never occurred to me that we were also going to be dressed as the Andrews
2: sisters.
1: (laughs) And this is where the story turns sad, because uh, you can probably see this coming. I panicked, and I backed out. Which means that that was the end of the act, that it it not only ended it for me, but it ended it for them too. Um, I just told them I couldn't do it. So I had been proud that my comfort zone had extended to hanging out with my new gay friends. I had extended it out to practicing in this gay nightclub. I had extended it to entering a talent show within and singing a song famously sung by women. And that was simply as far as I could go. Um, I'm grateful to this day. That was 35 years ago. I'm grateful that somehow the whole experience didn't ruin that great song for me I still enjoy it and I still sing along with it um, but I wonder every time I hear it would it have killed me to dress up as Maxine Andrews just for one fight? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not too late the ship is not sailed I know. I'll sing one of the you okay? See, I, I knew this would happen because like I said, we were sensational. So I knew I think I knew that part of the the prospect of my embarrassing myself in public was actually pretty large because I thought we would go on to the next level. So I could be like on television in Chicago dressed as a woman singing Boogie Woogie Boogie Bugle Boy. And I and I'm certain every single person here has an equivalent story of some opportunity, some experience, something that would have led to joy and goodness and greater rewards. We didn't take it because it was just outside that zone. Accepting that challenge asked just a little too much. There's a kind of a country blues song that I grew up with that had the first line says, Everybody wants to go to heaven. You know this song? Nobody wants to die. But
2: nobody wants to die. <laughs> there you go,
1: and that's it, isn't it? I mean, we we know how we'd like for things to be. We just don't always want to do what it takes to to make them happen. And we know there has to be suffering in this life, and it makes sense that we don't want to attract more suffering. We don't want to keep piling suffering onto ourselves. Buddhist thought and belief tells us that life is full of suffering and that much of this pain, maybe most of it, we bring on ourselves. Many of us are suffering in some way and we feel the solution is to negotiate that with a different form of suffering. In my story about being in the drag show, the solution seemed simple. Just quit. Just walk away and you won't experience this pain that you see rushing towards you. What I didn't understand at the time was that I was trading it for a different kind of suffering, for regretting that decision for the rest of my life. And I imagine we've all made those choices on bigger scales than than that. We, We may choose to go into debt to pay for something that we think we want. We eat and drink things that we know we are going to regret later. We may stay in relationships for decades that don't seem to be good for us because... Well, if we change things too much, there would be suffering for a while. So no matter how bad it is, we choose to stay. We may hate every day a job that we work at for years because getting another one might be really difficult. We may go through days and weeks and months of our lives knowing that there's something we ought to say to somebody, but we don't because we fear the shame or the exposure that we may briefly experience. So we go plodding timidly through our lives instead of sitting down with a person and saying, I'm sorry. I hurt you a long time ago, and I don't expect you to forgive me, but I'm sorry. Or sitting down with someone and saying, I've taken all I can, and I need out. Or one that I confronted recently, I know ours is not a family where we say I love you a lot and I know there's a lot of tension between us right now but I love you. We choose instead to suffer and suffer and suffer just to avoid the single big sharp loud suffering that we might have to endure for a short time. Choosing the small suffering of years over the big suffering of the moment as you heard Lola read is what the world famous Research Professor Brene Brown calls standing on the shores of the swamp. In the quote you heard uh, uh, Lola Reed, she observes that most of us are so caught up with the paralysis brought on by our own sense of shame that we will choose to stand forever on the edge of one unpleasant task and gaze forlornly across at the happier life on the other side. Never acknowledging that it's really a short trip through the swamp. And that there are people who are willing, ready to take your hand and go through the swamp with you and to make sure that you arrive safely on the other side. So yeah, everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die. Maybe that's not the right metaphor. Maybe that's not the right image because getting to the heaven we seek, if you will, getting to the good place in our lives that we want to be in, it's not really about dying. Maybe a better image is Yanking off a band-aid. Just zip that thing off. Get it over with. And then you'll be where you want to be. What's the, uh, what's the quiet, long-term suffering that you've chosen? What is it that keeps you from doing something you know you'd like to do or need to do? What suffering have you chosen instead? I ask because there are people ready to take your hand and wade through that swamp with you. I know because I'm one of them. I'm one of them. And I know there are others in this room. So that's your homework for this week. Ask yourself, how can we, your sisters and brothers in this family, help you cross the swamp to the happier place on the other side? Wouldn't this be a great time to sing Lean On Me? <laughs> Wouldn't I? Maybe. I asked rhetorically. <laughs> it's in, yes. I didn't get fitted. You didn't get fitted. It's in your teal hymnal and everything. It's hymn number 1021.
3: to the To my- Thank you.